Uh, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, though. That's the point of the tangent part of the podcast, so it works out great. Okay. You're, you're on brand. I'm on brand, as they say. I'm Russell Schmidt of the Valley Jazz Cooperative, and this is the Q&T Podcast. Today, I'm continuing to share questions and tangents with artist teacher Michael Coker. In this second half of our conversation, we discuss the sometimes random nature in discovering one's passions and influences, the deeper truths revealed on vinyl records, and even the lengthy path to be traveled just to join a school's stage band. And off we go. I continue to be joined by pianist Mike Coker, who is the Director of Jazz Studies at Arizona State University. Mike, I'd love to get right into exploring an important consideration in teaching music, specifically the development of one's creativity. While there are elements to studying jazz in an academic setting that are by necessity focused on building different skill sets, ultimately one's creative gifts are what distinguishes a player as an improviser and as a collaborative artist. Many of the students I've heard coming out of your jazz program possess wonderful creative impulses, so I wonder what you do to engender such growth in their creativity. I, I can't really know exactly what's going on, uh, but I know that anybody who's interested in creating art uh, wishes it could move more quickly. We all, you, you can't hurry the process, but you don't want to waste time. And so we look at those skills which make artists more professional, faster. Uh, and those are the same skills that I think uh, people have been teaching in music schools for a long time, with a few variations, I think, uh, unique to, uh, well, they're not unique to the jazz uh, idiom, uh, but being able to play back what you hear. I think we would add that to the other skills of being able to play uh, an instrument with great facility, with ease, uh, to be able to create clear oral images, um, to be able to read well. But also uh, we add, you know, being able to play things by ear and not be, uh, not uh, to empower our students to be able to learn music without written notation. Here's the recording. Learn the music. Uh, so we look at, at helping students develop these, these very core kinds of skills. Um, because jazz is, music isn't any one thing. It's many things. Um, and I've made the mistake, uh, uh, I've been teaching for a long time, and in my earlier uh, experience as a teacher, I I was sure that I knew how things worked. Um, and usually I, I would be kind of prescribing activities to my students that would be based on my latest discovery. Oh, that has to be really the important thing. You know, what, what, whatever, uh, revelation I had just had, you know, must be the most important thing. I think this is a very kind of normal experience for us sure. as, as students. You know, we have a revelation. Uh, we often think, oh, how could I have missed this? I will help my students 
by sharing this with them so that they don't waste all the time that I did. Sure. Um, so again, sort of this selective memory, this, you know, and it's hard to sort out what was really important when. Um, so over the years, as I've watched people do exactly what I tell them to do and just not sound creative, uh, I've decided that I, instead of maybe prescribing, I can think of creating a checklist of things that uh, will help them. So again, uh, some of it's very basic and, you know, not very newsworthy. You know, like I said, being able to play the instrument well, being able to hear stuff, being able to read, uh, depending on what your instrument is, uh, you know, well, getting a good sound, getting a good sound. It, it's it's applicable to every instrument in the jazz ensemble and any instrument or a singer, get a good sound, and then you can move on to playing in tune. And, it, you know, if you don't have a good sound, you won't be ready to listen to the next thing. Right. I uh, I remember... When I was teaching in Bowling Green, we had a jazz saxophonist who just wanted the technique of Brecker, but he had the tenor sound of McCullough chainsaw. And he spent four years getting more and more technique. And ultimately, the jazz faculty who repeatedly tried to get this individual to work on his tone, he had no interest in that. He just wanted the fingers. And the first thing you notice about someone is their tone, really. And, and it tells me he wasn't listening deeply to his own music. He was enjoying the visceral, physical, muscle memory thrill of crushing technical stuff. But it was not coming out in a sonic landscape that people would actually admire looking at or listening to. So I, I'm thrilled that getting tone together is really a primary consideration for you with your students, too. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and it's not easy. Uh, uh, and it, uh, what you described, the experience of playing can be so much fun and engaging, especially in improvised music, that um, you're not able to, to deal with it. Also, your change, your, your sound, uh, your sound changes uh, in every room. It changes in relationship to the people you're playing with. It's changing all the time. Sure. As pianists, there are, you know, different pianos that we have to play and figuring out how to find the sound that'll work for you with a given piano can be so overwhelming. Uh, it's hard to move to that next step where you're really engaging with the group. An out-of-tune piano really puts me off the playing board. Right. Uh, this is why I bring rubber wedges to gigs. Uh, to to try to eliminate that. And then, uh, yeah, sound is very important. And you mentioned Michael Brecker. I, I heard him live, and the sound I heard out of his horn at the blue note when I heard him um, was so much more beautiful for me than the sound I associated with whatever was fashionable uh, in terms of recording aesthetics in the right. 80s, sure. early 90s. The sound that I heard live, I just, I couldn't get enough of it. It was a beautiful saxophone sound. And the sound that he got on the records, I think, was to fit a certain 
model that was, again, fashionable at the time. And I'm sure, uh, I mean, he he was an unbelievable musician. So, you know, adapting and finding not just his sound in the room, but then there's the Michael Brecker microphone sound mm-hmm. and how that worked with a lot of the popular artists that he recorded with. If I can steer things back towards the earlier discussion of exploring one's creativity, what do you think drew you to jazz, or what do you think draws your ASU students to various forms of creative music making? You know, what what draws us to music, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's just, it's experiences. Uh, it's surprisingly random. I mean, I <laughs> I didn't grow up in a family where people were listening to jazz. I mean, uh, I grew up in a community where there were really no professional musicians. Uh, we had a piano in the house, and I thought the piano was amazing. I thought music was amazing. I had a chance to play a band instrument when I was in the fourth grade, uh, so I took up clarinet. And uh, after a while, I felt like I had too many activities going on, so I I think by the end of my the sixth grade, I decided this is too many things because I was playing Little League and soccer in the fall, basketball in the winter, you know, just doing it. I was in Weeblos, Cub Scout, you know. I, and I thought, you know, too many lessons, too much stuff to practice. I wasn't really practicing the clarinet, so I'd started on piano first, and I told my band director, uh, Elaine Tatillion at Joseph Sears School that I wasn't going to continue on clarinet. And she was bugged because, you know, because I'd started on piano, I read better than anybody sure. in the band. Right. And I'm not really that great a reader. <laughs> you were to Elaine. To Elaine Tatillion. Yes. Well, so I waited a while and I thought, you know, I wonder if I could play in a band as a pianist. So I went back to Mrs. Tatillion, who was still kind of bugged with me, and I said, well, is there a band I could play piano in? And this is after kind of a little break. Sure. And she said, well, the only band that has a piano is the stage band. There's a good 70s, early 80s term. The stage band. And I had remembered seeing the stage band played these, they, they played these published kind of watered down versions of tunes by Chicago. Sure. And other, I think, King of the Road. Wow. Yeah. Roger Miller? Yeah, these instruments. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Anyway, she said, well, you could try playing with the stage band. I was still taking piano lessons. I dropped clarinet lessons. And I went in there, and I failed miserably. Because um, reading all of this vertical reading, reading chords, I couldn't keep up with the other kids that I had outread as a clarinetist. Sure. Well, they were blowing past me in these charts because I was trying to sort out all these chords. She kicked me out of the band two weeks later. Again, uncomfortable break. And my mom called her, Mrs. Tatillion, reminded her of what an idiot I had been to quit playing clarinet. In those days, I think band directors could be way more candid. 
Sure. <laughs> sure. So Mrs. Tatillion suggested that I study w- with uh, somebody at the Alan Swain Studio in Evanston, Illinois. Evanston, which is the, the location of Northwestern University, um, Anyway, Alan Swain was this guy who created a method book and had a whole studio of teachers that taught people popular tunes, how to read chord symbols, how to use a face, fake book. And uh, so the summer after my failure, so this would be the summer before, I think probably before my eighth grade, I studied. And in the first lesson, I learned what a triad was and I learned what the blues scale was. And I started playing Leroy Brown, bad, bad Leroy Brown with this, you know, kind of quarter note boogie, woogie accompaniment. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is what I've been looking for. This is amazing. What is this? Because I'd always, want, you know, the method books that I had used as a, as a piano student, it was all, it was all about... Uh, my previous piano teacher had me so kind of boxed in by these methods. Well, you've done this book. You'll move on to this book. And I had taught myself to play like the first couple of pages of Scott Joplin's Entertainer. You know, sure. the movie had come out, the sting, you know. So Sure. Anyway, so I got into jazz band. I, I got interested in jazz because I could play piano in the band. And then... I thought about it again some 30 years later, and I realized, I guess, I guess I became more interested in jazz and tend to value jazz more because jazz music provides a place for a pianist to be virtuosic in a way that rock and roll doesn't do as often mm-hmm. or country music. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's all sorts of opportunities for virtuosic singing and virtuosic drumming and guitar playing in rock and roll. But it piano just really isn't in the picture. I mean, you've got Keith Emerson, but Keith Emerson didn't seem to, as hip to me as McCoy Tyner or sure. Oscar Peterson or Chick Corea or Herbie Hancock. Right. There was something deeper going on in jazz music. So... Uh, Again, my first piano lessons were about learning popular music. And this guy, Mike Campbell, who now lives in Sun City, mm-hmm. he's a minister. Um, I mean, he changed his profession probably 25 years ago or more. Sure. But uh, he played a, an Oscar Peterson recording for me in a lesson. And I thought, wow, that is, that's some piano playing. That interests me. And, I, you know, I was not exposed to... I had never been around a really amazing classical player. Right. I'd, so I'd never seen that firsthand. And Mike, Mike Campbell could play. Boy, he'd, he'd demonstrate stuff for me. And it would, I mean, he could just groove. And I thought, now, I like that. And I also like to dance. I was better at it when I was in junior high. I just, I love to dance. I think... The more I found out about music, the worse my dancing got, you know, because <laughs> it, it kind of stops you like, oh, what was that? You know, the analytical brain shuts down the dancer every time. 
Sure. I think anybody who's involved in challenging creative music has experienced paralysis due to, due to analysis, right? Right. But uh, I think I got into it because it gave me a, there was a home for me as a pianist, challenging music and the groove. I just love it. And, um, I, you know, so I'm not, I think this is a tangent. Um, Good. There we were looking for one, weren't we? We were. So, you know, when I look at how people get into jazz music, it's not because it's any more important than any other kind of music. My bias, you know, I, there's another thing. I'm really obsessed with a lot of old recordings, old, you know, the, the Blue Note Library, the Prestige mm-hmm. Library, the Riverside Library, because it was impossible to find those recordings when I was in my formative years. Right. So I feel like I'm playing catch up all the time. So all of, there are all of these sort of ir- irrational, you know, kind of unpredictable reasons why I focus on what I focus. I, at my core, I think I'm a dance band piano player. I... I find the blues deeply compelling and engaging, and it's something I just can't get enough of. I love great piano playing. I love harmony. Um, so these are this is what draws me to the music, and then the right. challenge of it, and then playing catch-up ball is another kind of obsession. So uh, I would never want to rob my students of their obsessions with the music because it's a lot of work. Right. And if you're going to put in that kind of time, <laughs> you better be a little obsessed with it. Right. So I try to think about, again, I, I keep coming back and peeling away sort of the periphery of it and perhaps the facade of some of it and try to keep it in hearing, <clears throat> audiating. And I, I bring theory in when I think it's going to help. I think, I, I'll bet you've experienced this, but uh, you began teaching like I did before iTunes and YouTube made the entire recorded history of jazz available. So we had to rely more on books and more on explaining. Mm-hmm. And there have been some pretty good explainers over the years. Jerry Coker, uh, one of your uh, mentors, Ray Wright, Bill Dobbins, uh, Jamie Ebersold. Sure. But it's impossible to get it just right, you know? Right. Uh, there's so much that's lost in the telling and so much to be gained by the experiencing of it. So uh, now you and I share the challenge of teaching, a, teaching rooms, band rooms full of fact checkers. Sure. And uh, I... I think I've done a fairly good job rolling with that. It was a little awkward at first, sure. you know, because I was so comfortable with whatever metho- methodology I had manufactured to kind of get around, well, we may not be able to find the recording of this. Right. Which was a very real issue. Absolutely. I, um, I am bothered by some jazz educators that have not adapted, that they're a little enamored with their methodology. Uh, and I think they're trapping their students. I think another component to that is they are not sufficiently meeting their students where their students are because the way 
a 19-year-old student's brain is wired in 2019 is very different from how my 19-year-old brain was wired in the early 80s. I think you and I were born the same year, so we're about the same age. And um, you have to meet people where they are. And one of the challenges I've found is getting young people to do truly directed listening, focused listening. They've gotten used to having music on in the background while they do other things, and that's a passive listening experience. You mentioned the Blue Note catalog. Well, there's so many things where I can find, oh my gosh, this obscure ECM record is on YouTube. You don't even have to have a Deezer this or a Spotify that, you know, membership for literally for free if you're willing to sit through a 15-second Buick ad you can hear some crazy <laughs> ECM track on YouTube, you know. And and one of the things I found is everything is available in a way it wasn't when you and I were coming up. But I think that that maybe makes things more of a, a passive acquisition experience for students, mo- modern students. And I think if you don't change, you use the term methodology. If as a jazz faculty, you don't change your methodology, holy cow, you're kind of freezing out a generation of students whose brains are wired tremendously differently. Uh, any any response there? Well, the only thing I can think of is this. I uh, My office right now is situated adjacent to our main rehearsal and class space, W114 in the School of Music. I'm, I'm in this room. There's actually a window where I can see in. I have blinds and on the window. I'd you know, I think <laughs> you don't turn it into a Hitchcock movie. There. No, okay, no. Not the but there are times I, I'm. You would probably remember the name of the character on Bewitched, the neighbor from across the street. Oh, sure. The, Was she Hazel something? No, I, I know who you're talking about. Oh, again, yeah. you know, we could just look it up here. We could fact check it. We could. I'll, I'll be sure that's in the show notes. People can <laughs> go to Wikipedia and find out about that actor. Anyway, there are times I just hear amazing music in 114. Uh, Lewis Nash teaches a repertoire class. So he curates an hour and a half class where he plays recordings. Um, and he, he just... They listen to the recording uninterrupted from beginning to end. Sometimes they'll listen to an entire side of an album. We also have installed a beautiful turntable in there because listening to vinyl, can we go back to sound? Sure. When it sounds that good, there are a lot of musical moments that penetrate you that would not do so otherwise. I remember in one lesson, I I was talking to a student, a piano student, about ballads to think about. And I just, I thought, well, have you heard Bill Evans' recording of Haunted Heart? And the student had not. And I thought, well, that's probably in my iTunes library. Well, that was one of those recordings I had on vinyl, had not made it over to my iTunes. To ones and zeros, yeah. Yeah, to MP3. And I had a turntable, and I said, well, let's go old school here. I'm going to pull it off the shelf here, and we're going to listen to it. I almost cried. It was so pretty. 
Sure. And pretty in a way that the MP3s are not. Right. And I thought, what what have we given up? What what are we not sharing with our students by not playing vinyl for them? So May uh, I jump in? Please. And also liner notes and beautiful cover art. We're giving up a lot of uh, a beautiful aesthetic experience. And uh, Tito Carrillo sat where you are currently seated uh, maybe two months ago when we recorded one of our very first podcasts. And he talked about all that he gleaned from liner notes that drove him to check out other artists when someone would, an artist would mention who influenced them. And he got a lot of what he needed for understanding the lineage and the history of jazz trumpet from reading liner notes by Wint, you know, on Wynton Marsalis recordings, and that drove him backwards to the right sources. So I think also by just going in a digital download age, we lose liner notes and we lose uh, some beautiful artwork that people give a lot of thought to, a lot of time to, whether it's magnificent photography or it's uh, uh, handcrafted uh, paintings or, or just awesome graphic design. There's a lot of things that get lost in our digital download age. So I'm, I'm with you on that, and I'm not digging in my heels about it. I'm just mildly disappointed that the experience isn't quite as enriching uh, in this digital age. Well, and I think you probably experienced what I experienced. You know, we, we were all so uh, excited about the convenience of MP3 music and you know, finding recordings and the flexibility of it. I mean, there are many things to like about uh, MP3 technology, but uh, we're, we're, you know, it's been around long enough where we, I think, uh, can make a, an informed critique of what it is. Right. Um, an important, uh, well... The musical conscience of the Phoenix music community, Clark Rigsby, uh, somebody who I hold in very high regard, uh, has been sharing a book. So it's time to plug the book, The Revenge of Analog, Real Things and Why They Matter by David Sachs. Awesome. The most quotable moment in the book, or I should say, Clark Rigsby's favorite quote in the book is, if it works, it's obsolete. <laughs> that sounds about right. I uh, wish we could go back about eight interfaces for iTunes. I think one of the very first ones they had, everything was in the right place, and they've just kind of made it user unfriendly with each upgrade. I couldn't agree more. I, yeah. I couldn't agree more, Steve Jobs. I think would be firing people left and right if he saw <laughs> what it, what was going on with his devices. Sure, sure. Um, anyway, where were we now? Oh, so I'm, I got it. So here I am in my office looking through the blinds because I heard something amazing at Lewis Nash's jazz repertoire class, and. Lewis doesn't say a lot in there. He just plays the music. And uh, he follows up with meticulous notes in an email to everybody in the class. And without telling anybody what to do, I keep hearing about these listening hangs. Matt McClintock, 
now, this wonderful drummer, hosts these listening parties uh, or hangs. And I think that's a nice, I, I think getting back to the narrative qualities mm -hmm. of music, um, I can easily spot the young composer who is, is kind of experiencing music, you know, in little bits. Oh my gosh, check out, you know, check out this video starting at two minutes, 45 seconds. It's just, it's sick, you know, and that's, that's, you know, that's the key moment. Uh, what I, what I tell students is I, I said, you know, we, we have a funny way of remembering musical performances. We remember that magic moment when Herbie just out of thin air plays a chord that no one could have imagined. What we forget is there's all of this very supportive, very uh, kind of structural sort of playing that does not come to the surface before that, you know. So everything that Herbie Hancock plays behind Miles Davis, you know, on any of the recordings from Four and More or My Funny Valentine, it's, it's not all that. Those are the moments that we remember. Mm -hmm. uh, Tony Williams does something exciting. Yeah, but this is after two minutes of playing straight time. Right. You know, um, so, you know, how we remember the music isn't always exactly how the music works, you know. We, right. We remember these peak experiences. Anyway, um, I think listening to that, to music, very, just very simply from beginning to end, without interruption, uh, kind of getting back into experiencing music like you experience a movie, uh, has... Uh, Without anything fancy, Lewis has brought all of that uh, back into the student culture in a way that I wouldn't, I mean, uh, the concept was so simple. And what's been amazing is how it's changed the way people play mm -hmm. and write. Beautiful. Because uh, as Lewis, anytime I bring a question to him, I mean, I... I've got all sorts of good experience, but I, you know, I kind of see myself as sort of in the farm leagues, uh, very competent, professional. I can jump in, do what's needed at a very high level. I, you know, I'm very proud to say that, but it's different than being in this world where you're playing. Well, you've already played with Hank Jones, Cedar Walton, Sonny Rollins, Oscar Peterson, Tommy Flanagan. And next week, you're going to meet John Schofield and Joe Lovano. Sure. I mean, like in that level of game constantly. Right. That kind of experience. Lewis, Lewis comes in and with, I bring my questions to him. I mean, uh, who has more experience than that that I know? Right. I mean, I can call Benny Golson and ask him, but... Lewis is a rhythm section player, so there's a special kind of perspective that we rhythm section players have. So I, I call Lewis, and almost every time he says, well, it all starts with listening, doesn't it? And sound. Right. And if you start there, you start asking the next right questions. Beautiful. And again, I, I know this 
you know, I'm not providing a lot of varied information here, a lot of specifics, but if you don't start there, things things can kind of get misdirected, I think. And just to watch him create this class and the impact of it um, has, has, has it's been a, a, an amazing discovery for me or a rediscovery of something that maybe right. I had taken for granted. Right, and a real blessing for your students too. That's, that's awesome that oh, he's yes. sort of restoring some of the concepts that might be in that David Sachs book. I'll, I'll want to get on the Clark Rigsby train and check that out as well. Clark always has has uh, good reading suggestions. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Can I uh, circle back to a couple points? Mm-hmm. After you uh, did some study with Alan and Mike, did uh, your band director ever let you back in the stage band? <laughs> yes, she did. Uh, I think our listeners were on pins and needles to find out the resolution of that oh, story. Was yeah, there a third act with Mike, your teacher? Yeah, I was kicked out of the band, and I never studied with Alan Swain. I met Alan, uh, and I'm very thankful that he had set up this space for this to happen. But I just studied with Mike Campbell, and after one summer with Mike Campbell, I came back and did very well in the stage band. Great. So uh, this is another reason why studying harmony, jazz harmony, can be a way to improve uh, skills that I think can uh, are applicable in, in other ways of playing the piano. Sure. I think uh, a few years later, I started taking classical lessons again and was just in a better place mm-hmm. uh, because of uh, that exposure to harmony. Um, Mike Campbell uh, went on the road, and right after I completed my freshman year of high school, so two years with Mike, and then he directed me to a saxophone, a saxophonist named Joe Daly, who taught jazz improvisation to all instrumentalists. Mm-hmm. And Joe would be probably, the, uh, I think he was born in 1920 or 1918 or something like that. So when I studied with him, he was in his 60s. Um, he was originally from Detroit, lived in Chicago, uh, was roommates with Sonny Stitt at one point. Wow. Uh, really fantastic and creative saxophonist. And uh, he really stuck it to me. Uh, Mike, Mike Campbell, this piano teacher, said, you know, you should go. I said, you, you seem like you're serious about this and you really enjoy it. If you think you might want to be a professional musician, I suggest you study with this guy. He will be uncompromising, and you'll find out whether this is for you. And uh, I had initial failures with Joe, but uh, my parents, they didn't really, I mean, they just, they, they saw me fail, and, and they told me not to give up, not because they wanted me to become profe- a professional musician, um, but they thought that it would be good for my character. Mm-hmm. To rise to the challenge, and that I shouldn't, I should, you know, come back and try to do exactly what he asked me, even though it seemed outrageous to me. So they supported me, my study of jazz piano, 
Um, <laughs> it's, you know, uh, which is kind of a crazy pathway. You sure, know? sure. But that's awesome. Whatever their motivations, whether they had uh, hopes for you that you would enter a professional musician's life or not, that their goal was to create gumption, to create uh, industry, stick to to accomplish a task. That's beautiful character building right there. Well, my mother, you know, she raised six kids, but she studied art and was an art teacher, was going to be a like a visual arts teacher. And I think she she recognized me as that creative kid that could be a little aimless and kind of coming back to where our conversation started. You know, what what are the skills that allow you to be efficient and actually to create something? Because it it stops being and it, it it stops being kind of an escapist experience or some sort of recreational experience at mm-hmm. a certain point. Um, you know, losing yourself in your art. Uh, maybe kind of what suckers us into it, but keeping us in the game is always like a pain in the neck, like dealing with the details and finishing things. It's, I don't care how talented somebody is, it's always a big pain in the neck to kind of finally get it done. Right. And the, and the players and composers that make it appear to be easy, it's never easy. There's always a lot of work into it. And I think my mom understood that. So she thought, well, if you're serious about creating anything, you might as well see it through with this guy and better him than me, <laughs> you know, to teach right. you this lesson. Right. Beautiful. Can I uh, steer us back to something you said earlier that really fascinates me? And honestly, we've talked about this briefly before uh, in, in a previous conversation, uh, not, not today's podcast recording, but I talk about blind spots and sometimes the blind spots are generational. We have a mentor teacher or two mentor teachers and they don't necessarily favor a certain historically significant jazz artist. And so you take their, the decision they made, which may be an unfair bias and it creates a blind spot in your own development. Uh, you used the word playing catch up or the phrase playing catch up earlier with regards to, well, when I was growing up, I heard about Tina Brooks, but Lord knows I could never find any Tina Brooks uh, LPs on the Blue Note label. Or, or I heard about Herbie Nichols. That was a human being, but I could never find any Herbie Nichols recordings. You know, those are a couple things that come to my mind as pre-digital age blind spots for me. Um, and you said you're playing catch up in addition, of course, you and I both try and and keep current with the leading artists who are one, two, three decades younger than we are. Um, how do you go about playing catch up and, and what informs the choices you make when you decide, ooh, I need to go back and learn more about a particular artist? Well, let me think about, let, let me just confess how I, I try to make all of this work for the students. Uh, at a certain point, I thought, I, at a certain point, I decided I cannot know it all. I cannot know all of the music. And uh, one of the things that I look for and encourage on our faculty 
is enough overlap to make things come together, but enough uh, diversity in our interests to provide coverage for the students that may not be, uh, I think, obsessed like, you know, like I am with Wynton Kelly. Right. Uh, I can tell you why, I can tell a pianist why Wynton Kelly might, you know, spending time understanding Wynton Kelly might be uh, more bang for the buck than some other pianists. But not at the expense of them listening to Craig Taborn. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Uh, uh, an amazing pianist. That may not, you know, for, for all I know, Craig Taborn's all about is Wynton Kelly. But, I mean, you would not, that's not something that would jump out at me from the recordings I've heard. Right, right. Uh, I understand that Brad Meldow has always loved his Wynton Kelly recordings. Mm -hmm. And I've heard stories about uh, people that came up with him. And, you know, oh, well, yeah, you could hear him practicing all the solos and you know, sounding just like Wynton Kelly when he was younger. Awesome. So I, I don't try to do it all. Right. And I I think uh, as I <clears throat> tell teachers in training, you don't need to know everything. But look around the room because there might be somebody here that knows what your student needs to know. So if you don't know, know somebody that knows. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Band directors have been living by that for decades, yep. and uh, it's a load off. Yeah, you know, I'm a piano player. I'm very grateful when I have a an accomplished grad student in the trombone section or the trumpet section, saxophone section. And also talking about what what you just said, having a team assembled. I think about you know you versus Lewis Nash versus Brian Ruth and the sort of subgenres within jazz he might be most passionate about or versus Ben Hedquist. I think those, if this is Venn diagrams and we have four circles there, there's massive coverage for that because the overlap between the circles isn't always substantial with the team you've assembled. So that's really got to be for the benefit of the students. That's awesome. I think so. I think so. I, um, you know, it, it might be very comforting to be around people that are like-minded, but the reality of that, and I think, I'm sure you've experienced this on the bandstand, you think, oh, this is a person I know I'm going to connect with. After a while, you feel cornered by it because, you know, you, you suddenly you're in a bubble. Mm -hmm. And then there's that person that you never you know, that seems maybe so unlike you in their musical interests that brings something out of you that you just didn't imagine. Right. Um, isn't that a gift? Yeah. To be on the bandstand. I, I, I can picture the people that have made me play things that I never, ever imagined before. You're saying that triggers a thought in me, which is a couple of Februarys ago, I got to play with the adjudicator, jazz faculty uh, combo at Chris Finney's NAU uh, Jazz Festival and got to play with Lucas Pino and Joel Fromm. 
And in my comping, yeah, I got pushed to do things I never do with the formidably talented jazz artist base we have here in Phoenix, um, just because the language with Joel Fromm was so different. And I had such a great time accessing fresh parts of my brain and trying to comp in a way that communicated in real time with Joel Fromm. And he said the most generous thing to me as we walked off the stage, because then they were getting ready to bring out Mm -hmm. an AU student group. And he said, man, I wanted to play one more tune. I was just starting to figure you out. (laughs) And I love that because I was just trying to figure out how I could play with him. And, you know, over the course of three or four tunes, we had begun to achieve simpatico in how can I comp in a way that connects with his formidable tenor playing. And and it, it just made me feel like, okay, he can mop the floor with me technically, you know, from a, from a, a technique standpoint. He can completely mop the floor with me. And yet he's such a generous player. He's still trying to communicate with me, even though in this scenario, he's kind of a Mozart and I'm kind of a Salieri. And I, it was so meaningful that he's like, man, I wanted to play one more tune. I was just trying to figure you out or just starting to figure you out. That That really resonated with me that... It's a beauty in this music, in this art form, that we can all communicate wherever our technique is. If, you know, making music isn't a race, because if it's a race, Dizzy always wins and Miles always loses. Pat Metheny always wins and Bill Frizzell always loses. Bud Powell always wins and Count Basie or John Lewis always lose. It's not making a race. And he wanted to play ball with me, and that made me feel such... uh, vindication as a creative human being. I was very grateful to him for that moment. So hearing you talk about that, you know, that maybe when you're playing with somebody who you're totally simpatico with, it actually could be a little bit limiting. And so some of the best moments and the best personal growth moments come from being challenged by those who aren't artistically like-minded. Well, and you also bring up something else. Uh, From my experience, the true masters of the music show more creativity about the music around them than anything that they're playing. Mm -hmm. That's always kind of blown me away. Because as, you know, as, as a member of the rhythm section, you know, you're there to serve. And again, with the very finest players, most established players, the reason, the ones that we care the most about you know, when I've, ever, when I've ever been with any of them, it's always, I make one move at the piano and they're all over it. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. That's how it's going to be. Yeah. Dialogues, not monologues. Yeah. Everything matters. Yeah. It's very collective. No matter how, uh, chops or whatever, it always starts with, I hear what you're doing. I hear everything that you're doing. Let's make this together. Wow. I think that's a lovely place to leave our discussion today, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us, and I certainly want to mention that our listeners can find your recordings at michaelcoker.com and originarts.com. And to learn more about the Valley Jazz Cooperative, please visit valleyjazz.org. The VJC Q&T is recorded right next door to the Kravitz Estate here in Tempe, Arizona.